Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. You are truly not in competition with others. You're not really separate from others. We are connected by a power greater than us. And coming to terms with that essence is very liberating. Uncertain times and crises can sometimes be the springboard for great personal growth. This, of course, is, you know, why I meditate and why I'm interested in, in spirit traditions like Buddhism and other traditions. Uh, because every time I've sought something out that is outside of me, it eventually wears off. Oh, oh. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Jeffrey Krasno. Jeffrey is on Oprah's Super Soul 100 list. In this conversation, we discussed, among many things, intentionally seeking out people who disagree with you. If you think that's easy, give it a try. It's not so easy. We all want to be right. Jeffrey eloquently shows us how to become more human. You're going to love this episode. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Jeffrey Krasnow. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Nice to be with you. Well, listen, I am super excited to have you on the show today because people are going through some really crazy times right now, and many of them feel like they've lost their way. Um, and hopefully, we'll be able to help them, or you'll be able to help them. I'm just going to be a facilitator, navigate through these times. You know, uh, COVID has completely turned people's worlds inside out. And since you're one of uh, Oprah's Super Soul 100 guys, who else could we ask for help other than Oprah's top 100? So my first question from a spiritual perspective, we're going to start off straight with the woo-woo. What do you think is going on from a spiritual perspective? if anything, with COVID. Yeah. Well, first of all, great to be with you. Thank you. And uh, as far as Oprah goes, I always consider myself number 99 on that list, although she, she, didn't, <laughs> she didn't assign um, 
numbers, but uh, considering who else is on that list, so I'm just pretty humbled. And uh, of course, I certainly don't, don't consider myself in that league. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot going on uh, as it pertains to the spiritual dimensions of COVID and everything that that's wrought. And uh, I, I think it is sort of a, I, I would say, an elixir of the spiritual and the the physiological or the neurological, if you will. And um, and and I, I think they're they're associated or concomitant. Um, I mean, what I am observing in the world is um, a tremendous amount of fear, a tremendous amount of outrage, uh, a tremendous amount of anger. And in many cases, justifiably so. And we can, you know, probe all of the sources of, of, of those emotions. But what is happening, at least in my estimation, is this kind of elixir of social media and global pandemic have combined to create a kind of derangement syndrome that I often refer to as amygdala hijack. So amygdala is this little almond cluster of neurons in the kind of center of your brain, which is responsible for kind of mediating certain kinds of emotions. People uh, are obviously familiar with fight or flight or freeze. Um, but really what it does is that there is a relationship between your amygdala and your endocrine system um, and your hypothalamus such that, you know, in a state of threat, uh, your body releases cortisol and epinephrine generally to poise you for fighting a physical threat. But of course, our threats in the modern world are, are rarely physical. I don't know if you're charged by a, a, an ungulate on the Serengeti very often, but I'm not. No, no, but I, <laughs> but I, but I did, I did go to a Coliseum where they used to do that stuff. But yeah, but that other than the remnants, you're right. There's nothing. Well, there. the amygdala was has plenty of utility in in, uh, in the Coliseum and in other places too. I mean, fear is a great barometer of of decision making. You know, and fear doesn't always have to be uh, doesn't always have to elicit um, a panic attack. In fact, um, you know, fear can also be interpreted as awe or respect for something powerful. Um, and it's often used in religious terms that way. But the way that we're experiencing it largely in this day and age is um, is through uh, all of the polluted information ecosystem that is throwing us, that is prohibiting us to center in our prefrontal cortex, where we can actually make informed and rational and reasoned decisions, where we can move back into the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest, um, and out of the sympathetic nervous system. Those are the two primary components of the autonomic nervous system, what's happening, what's being governed by our brain below the crust of consciousness. And, um, 
And too often, I think what we're seeing is a state of perpetual amygdala hijack, where we're always infused with cortisol, where we're living in a state of constant inflammation. And uh, that is characterizing the public discourse or lack thereof it, um, where you see tremendous amount of vitriol being spewed back and forth. I mean, COVID or a viral epidemic of all things, should be the thing that underwrites our mutual interdependence. I mean, my well-being is literally quite dependent on yours, Rob. <laughs> you know, and so this yeah. is a moment where we could actually recognize the fact that we are all connected by a power greater than us, and that just might be the definition of spirituality. That my self-awareness in the sense of non-self-awareness, that you and I are actually connected through myriad um, means. And we can talk about all the different ways that you are, you and I are connected um, on a bacterial level or otherwise. But we seem to have eschewed any notion of connection. And the sanctification of individuality, which has permeated or punctuated liberalism and and the U and Western culture, seems to now have only been exacerbated by um, by this crisis. And of course, one of the pointedly one of the ways of best taking care of our of each other is distancing from another, and that's made it quite difficult. Also, so what I see is this. And I'm not beyond experiencing it, you know, a sense of isolation, of loneliness, of atomization in combination with this consistent drip of cortisol-fueled fear and outrage. And uh, and that is really having degenerative effect, effects on personal health, because we obviously know how associated stress is with all sorts of chronic disease, but it's also keeping us in a state of societal inflammation where we have seen an erosion of social cohesion. And, and without being able to, to cohere socially, we really just can't attack uh, or be in relationship with the biggest obstacles uh, of our time. So so that's a little bit of my analysis of the situation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's really crazy. You know, many of us become, you know, I moved to Italy two weeks ago and I'm in Florence and uh, it's really, it's a really interesting experience because, you know, I was in LA as well. I was in Hermosa Beach and uh, after a while, I just, became habituated to my life. You know, I, I surfed and, you know, went to this Mexican joint and that Mexican, like I just became used to it. And so it was like, you know, here, everything is new for me. And because everything is new, it's like my subconscious is working all night long. Right. And, um, COVID has caused everything to become new for people. Their habituated lives are no longer habituated in that way. Um, I personally went through what I now know to be, at least I think, um, a panic attack in the middle of the night. I had, um, I just woke up like three o'clock in the morning, probably two months after COVID started. 
And I thought I was having a heart attack. I was sleeping and it woke me up. And then the next night, you know, I didn't want to go to sleep because if I went to sleep, I was going to wake up and have another heart attack. And then, then I want to put insomnia, you know what I mean? And it became this loop. So eventually, and it was not quick. It took me a good year to stop that adrenaline for lack of a better word Mm-hmm. from triggering that amygdala that you're talking about in the middle of the night. And no matter how much I talked to myself and said, you're not going to die, it still felt like the room was closing in on me. It still felt like I, when I looked in the backyard, the trees started to like like lose shape a little bit. I mean, it was like a straight up panic attack. And I'm, I'm literally at one side of my brain, I'm going, what? Like, what are you doing? Like, you know that you're fine. Like you're not having a heart attack, but every part of my body was saying you are. And the more things became closed down, the worse it got. Mm. And um, I had to, I, and if I look at before this, I spent way too much time watching CNN, trying to, you know, uh, have an opinion. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so many people that are dying of pneumonia. Why the hell is, why is this thing, the thing that we're all focusing on? Do you know, masks don't work. I've watched a thousand doctors show that you blow smoke right through the mat. You know what I mean? And then I started getting stuck in a position right. and then I, then I was upset that nobody understood my position, you know? And, um, so I guess the question is what I had to do for me personally to get through this was disconnect literally every NPR podcast <laughs> that I had, uh, eliminate the uh, all the YouTube shows that I was subscribing to and watching while I was at the gym trying to clear my head. And that removal has put me in a better place than I've ever been in my life. Because now every now and again, something slips by and somebody says something to me and I feel like I'm an outsider and I'm not so passionate. So with that long backstory, what do you suggest that people who are in my former self's uh, position do to deal with this discomfort that they're having? Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that story with, with me. And I can certainly relate to bits of it. Um, I think there's two answers to it. I mean, Rumi has a quote that I'll certainly butcher, but, you know, beyond ideas of right and wrong, there's a field, I'll meet you there. Um, And I think that that is an option. I mean, I I, I think that, you know, opinions are not, um, you know, uh, the highest class reflection of, (laughs) of humanity. And, uh, and clearly what should be driving a lot of common cause is, is only exacerbating polarity. So one has to examine like the utility of, you know, watching a hundred YouTube videos, um, and girding oneself in uh, a position because that position is only defined by an opposition to something else. And this is what's characterizing our, our landscape now is that almost every issue, not just COVID, is creating binary oppositions. And people are just, that no one's talking to each other. They're just yelling at each other, basically. So I, I do think that there, it is really 
beneficial to human sanity and health to be able to remove oneself from the information ecosystem, realize that it's polluted, and really just move yourself out of that agitation such that you can reconnect with the practices and modalities of your life that you know make you happy and 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 promote homeostasis so it's like there you are you know in italy like having a full life and not necessarily having to feel like you need to have the most up-to-date information on uh, antibody dependent enhancement or whatever you know the latest thing or like the fifty thousand meta studies on ivermectin or whatever so I, I do think that that's healthy. And just as a, you know, general practice um, to, to, fat, to engage in digital fasting, uh, if you will, um, on a consistent basis, just put everything away and just come back down into your body. Then I think that there is another avenue to pursue. And this is the one that I have pursued only because I play a certain public role and uh, within commune and my podcast and my writings and, and whatever. And I feel a sense of responsibility to be as informed as possible. But information can also be liberation if you're willing to be wrong. And I have had to learn to be able to be willing to be wrong for the sake of society. And this is really, you know, there's a lot of uh, misconception and misunderstanding about the nature of science, as if science is something fixed. And uh, a study comes out and it gets published in a peer-reviewed journal. And, you know, that's the final word of God. <laughs> but science is actually much more flexible and protein than revelation. <laughs> um, science, you know, leverages a method of hypothesis, experimentation, observation, deduction, you know, induction, modification of hypothesis, conclusion that is that that finds certain truths in the moment but is humble to always ask the question why and how and can reapply that same method to shifting conditions. So, you know, I've really had, you know, for me, I, what I have done is I don't have a TV, so it's not even an option for me. I just read. Is, is, that, uh, is that a new decision or have you always had not had a television? <laughs> you know, since I... I've been with the same woman for 33 years, partner, and she grew up as a hippie on a commune. And there were a few things early on in our relationship that we just like French fries and TV. <laughs> I, gave <laughs> I gave that up, you know, much to my chagrin at that point. But see, it's paid off. In the long run. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, I mean, just like you know, tens of thousands of other people, I have been basically moonlighting as a microbiologist for 18 months. And it's been, you know, fascinating. I mean, I, I worry about the distrust in expertise and institutions and science, quote unquote. Yep. Um, and a lot of that, to be honest, is self-immolation 
But there's also just like a degradation of epistemology and all this kind of stuff that's led to a lot of distrust. But for me, and for other people, I've learned more about microbiology and virology and epidemiology in the last 18 months than I ever knew anything about it at school, you know, for, for sure. And in a way, it's been a great public education, but it's also, you know, it depends how rigorously and with what degree of thoroughness you want to engage in, in actually learning and really checking for your biases. and constantly asking yourself the question, am I responding to the information itself or am I or am I responding to my judgment of it? And that is the root of stoicism. And so to practice stoicism, you always need to sit, kind of hover above yourself and look at your emotions and sensations arising in consciousness and examine their derivations. So There's like, am I reacting to something because i think that masks are, don't work or that you know the vaccine campaign is is bollocks or whatever it happens to be am i just reacting to that or am i actually from my prefrontal cortex examining the derivation of any emotion that might be arising in me so anytime i'm reading a science journal or primary source data on the nih website which has replaced my sex life basically um, um <laughs> at night it's like come to bed honey i'm like sorry i'm reading primary source <laughs> data hot yeah uh, <laughs> um, it's super sexy yeah super sexy that, uh, that hippie is so glad for covid <laughs> yeah, yeah right um <laughs> yeah, we, we try to find some balance but that's probably another podcast um so, you know, for me, I've really tried to uh, delve, uh, to use information as liberation and not necessarily be alloyed to any particular position or argument or polemic, uh, but actually just be as flexible and versatile as I possibly can. And given the data that is available on any particular day and to surrender to some degree of uncertainty because the ground is shifting beneath us. And, you know, you say like one of the comments, one of the thoughts I had when you were discussing, when you were describing your experience in Hermosa Beach and then moving to Italy and now how alive you feel, you know, we do get quite married to certainty in our lives, our brain, our mind really gravitates to certainty we want to know and in the absence of knowing of and in the reality of unknowing um we can feel quite adrift you know now you found a, a way to like in the unknowing to become alive right in italy and i can understand why the novelty of that ha has sparked your your vitality but a lot of people I think in the uncertainty of what's going on and what's next, uh, you know, become quite, you know, addled. And I think that that contributes again to this sense of like unsettledness or, or sympathetic, you know, override or amygdala hijacks, et cetera. Well, I tell you what's interesting about it is the other side of it, you know, for people that are listening now that are, you know, just feeling really bad. The other side of it is it can force you, not maybe force is a bad word, but it can 
um, make you have some changes or consider making changes in your life. For example, you know, it's like a perfect storm. You were in LA, so you know, there was the riots, then there was the sh- then there's shootings and there's this massive political divide um, that was happening in the States. And, and then of course, COVID. And it really got me thinking about reevaluating things. And I, you know, one day I just sat down and I was like, well, how do I want to live my life? I want to live it with things that I enjoy. I enjoy great food. I enjoy great wine. I enjoy people that are passionate, you know, I enjoy fashion. I like all these things. And, you know, Italy was like the obvious choice, but then it was, well, can I do that? can I just pick up and actually move to it? Like, am I crazy? Like, is this like, and then it started creating all these questions in my mind. And so what is your take on using this period of time where there's massive unrest in so many different areas to force you out of the certainty that you're referring to and into something that maybe is an even better life. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because we're speaking just to timestamp our conversation. And I know it will be published at another time, but we're speaking on uh, September 10th, um, 2021. So tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Uncertain times and crises can sometimes be the springboard for great personal growth. And in the wake of 9-11, my wife took a risk. I mean, she asked herself, what am I going to do with my wild and and precious life, right? And I think these kinds of moments societally uh, create that opportunity to take risk. And so she opened a yoga studio at Ground Zero 20 years ago. Uh, Whoa. and it was just above my office, and uh, it was this rickety, humble little one-room studio. You had to go up these cockeyed lime green stairs, and it wasn't like a fancy equinox that was on the you know on every corner right. now. And um, I mean, I got a front row seat to witness kind of this motley assortment of. New York denizens come up and roll out their mats and sweat and then come out into this little vestibule and drenched and hearts cracked open, sit on these little stained futons in the lobby and in communion heal. And I mean, that completely bent the arc of my professional and personal life, just being able to kind of witness that phenomenon of how well, in this case, yoga, but really how spiritual practice and community can heal and transform people. And that would have never happened if my wife hadn't taken that risk in that moment. And she was propelled to do that by some force that was greater than herself, because there was a voice in her that said, you know, oh, like, well, what if I fail? Well, all of that is connected to judgment, right? We, we often do not take risks because we're 
we live in fear of the judgment, the judgment of failure. Oh, what are people going to think if I try this thing and it doesn't work? And, you know, these times of crises, I hope, like, snap us out of our ego. I mean, it's uh, the identification with that feeling of failure, which is the ego. And, I mean, this is a moment of shakeup. And that would be, if I have any piece of advice, you know, humble as number 99 on the list, um, is that, you know, take advantage of this time to really look at how your ego might be governing your decisions. And, mm-hmm. and really f- come to terms with, you are not what you do. You are not what you have. Uh, you are not what other people think of you. Like, you don't need the approval of others. Um, That is an ephemeral type of happiness. You are truly not in competition with others. You're not really separate from others. We are connected by a power greater than us. And coming to terms with that essence is very liberating. And I think it can help us find our true north, you know, whatever that happens to be. and and take some risk and, uh, and, you know, some risk, not great. I'm not saying jump off the side of a cliff, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, no, but maybe, uh, maybe take the risk to listen to the impulse that's inside of you for whatever the reason is your wife had an impulse and it was scary, you know, to open up, especially during that time, right? Like you have to go back to that time. People were, f- I, I was in New York when it happened. People were, f- as you could imagine, out of their minds. I mean, we thought the world was coming to an end that day. Yeah. And to have the wherewithal to do that is really, you know, quite remarkable. You know, you mentioned something a second ago that triggered a thought. And two weeks ago, when we moved here from Hermosa, we had this vision, we're going to take all of our shit with us. You know, we're just going to just move Hermosa to Italy. And then one by one, you know, I know you're a guy that traveled all over the world and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but one by one reality hit. And, you know, the electric bike actually is too fast for Europe. It's considered a motorcycle. And that would mean that I'd have to take a motorcycle test in Italian. So that's not coming. And the Peloton that I use costs as much to ship as it (laughs) did to buy. And the, you know, it was one after the other. Uh, can't take the furniture, obviously. I mean, we had everything going on a, on a, on a trunk, on a, a container ship coming to Italy. We literally, I'm telling you, got rid of everything we owned. And this was unintentional. This was, we got rid of everything because we, it just couldn't, it wasn't happening. It wasn't coming. And it was, there were things that I looked at and I was like, how am I going to get rid of my car? Like, this is my car. Like, this is my car. It's a part of who I am. How could I, how could I be without a car somewhere? And I had a thousand of those things. And it made me realize that we are not our stuff. And what you just described about how we think about other people and what they think and how we're connected to the things that we have. We're not. We're none of those things. We are much more 
I don't know if the word is ephemeral. I don't know what it is, but it really just gave me this aha that we're like, we're living our life for somebody else or stuff that we have and trying to keep up an image and all of those things. Can I ask you something? Sorry. My my inner podcast host takes over everyone. No, 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 no. Go ahead. What, what did you end up bringing out of curiosity with you? Five bags, Mm -hmm. five bags. And then what I did was I discovered something called amazon.it. And <laughs> I looked at it and I said, I need podcast lights. I can't bring podcast lights. Amazon.it. Oh, they have lights. Boom. So I sold everything and whatever I needed, I rebought here, but it was only things like this, like, well, the microphone I shipped, but like a light or stuff like that. But if you like, categorized everything that I brought with me, 98% of it was close. It was just, it was like, but but I don't mean like, you know, like a lot of clothes. I mean, like, you know, I'm I'm 55 years old. I've accumulated clothes. It was probably the things that really meant something to you that you really were connected to. Like I've got got this little, I don't know. This was not a prop that I meant to have here. I have this uh, little coupon book that my dad, my daughter makes me for father's day she makes me one every year it's got all these coupons in it's like i'll walk on your back five times you know i'll take a walk with you twice or whatever oh this my is, god super sweet for those of you watching the video you get a visual um i would never throw that away right <laughs> but you know the, we tend to look at material objects as disposable in our culture because they they have no meaning because they're produced on mass and are replicable and they're made in China or whatever. And we just have this relationship that there is nothing divine. There is nothing spiritual in a pencil, right? And that is a, a product of, of mechanization and so globalism to some degree, it's like anything and everything seems to be replaceable. And because it's replaceable, it's disposable. But things like a coupon book, or I'm sure like some special sweater that has a story connected to it, or maybe your grandmother made it for you, or a, 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 my watch, I'm not wearing it now, but my dad gave me a watch for college graduation. That's a long time ago. I still wear that same watch because those things actually do have spiritual value. And, you know, so we've, we've spent a lot of time, you know, divorcing the material and the immaterial. But I think, you know, we can come back into connection with less stuff, lest we be owned by our stuff. You know, I think you learned that on, on your move. But then stay connected to the material objects in our life that really do hold some interconnected meaning for us. And, um, and this, to be honest, is one of my theories around being able to deal with climate reality is that, you know, there's a lot of different solutions that we're going to need to engage with, but one of them is simply consuming less. And if we think about our food this way, or think about objects in our life, you know, and we, almost ask ourselves is this is this meal infused with something divine or spiritual do i know where it came from did a farmer 
actually growing? What were the means by which it was grown? You know, was it just sprayed with glyphosate on a Roundup Ready, you know, corn seed sold by a German company, Bayer, to a farmer in Iowa? I mean, or was it grown by, you know, someone I might know, you know, down the street? And the same thing is like, you know, do I really need to buy, you know, another shirt or another book? In, in, in you know, in... Uh, in contrast to something like the coupon book. So, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's really interesting what you're saying. I um, had dinner last night and uh, was asking the guy about a bottle of wine, the, the waiter. <laughs> and he said, this wine, um, the reason why I like it is because it's grown on the, co- the grapes are grown on the coast here. And you can almost taste the, the salt in the air. Mm. In the, and he had a whole story with it. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm in. Yeah. And I was, I was connected with it, right? And now it's, it's truffle season here. So he was talking about how, you know, uh, he's got a guy that comes in the back door. Um, he's the truffle guy. He, he knocks three times because if the other restaurants hear it, they're gonna want it. And so those are the things that I'm connecting to now mm-hmm. that are just filling me up. Like, I'll give you another example. Night before last, we had a great bottle of wine and I asked the guy, I said, can I, we're going to get one more, one more glass. Uh, can we do this? No, I, I can't. I said, oh, you don't, you don't sell by the glass? He said, no, we have them by the glass, but I can't give you a, a glass. I said, why? He said, because the glass I have, the, the glass of wine that you would order isn't as good as the one you're drinking and you, you can't go backwards. If you want to go to the guy across the street, you can, you can do whatever you want, but I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of it. And I was like, holy shit. Wow. And those things that was, I was unprepared for when I came here are the things that are, I can viscerally feel it in my body in a completely different way. And I wonder how much mindless shopping, buying, consumerism, I was doing to fill some gap that I was empty with. That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, we are- And I'm talking, by the way, I'm talking about a $10 bottle of wine. This is not like a thousand dollars. This is maybe 15 bucks. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's a great story. Um, I think we're conditioned, certainly in modern Western culture, to continually seek out external agents to assuage our various discontents or lack of happiness or perceived efficiencies. And I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm a firm believer in capitalism, but this is how capitalism works. It essentially is on perpetually makes us feel not enough. And then markets trinkets and products and services and goods to, to address those, that perceived not enoughness that perceived inadequacy. And everywhere we turn our head, there's billboards or ads or things targeting us to fill gaps. And at the end of the day, we always learn that every buzz of any sort wears off, whether that's a shopping buzz or an Instagram dopamine buzz or a wine buzz or anything that we seek out externally that makes us feel good is ephemeral. And really, if we are looking for some kind of long-lasting contentment and happiness, there's only one way to look. And that's not outward, (laughs) it's inward. And this, of course, is, you know, why I meditate and 
why I'm interested in in spirit traditions like Buddhism and other traditions. Uh, because every time I've sought something out that is outside of me, it eventually wears off. All right. This is a perfect place to pick up um, your book. Why did you write? What is communion about and why did you write it? How about that? Sure. Well, it had no premeditation, to be honest. And um, I don't, well, at, at the time when I started writing it, I didn't really have any plans to write a book. You know, we went into lockdown. So this uh, was March 2020. Yep. And yep. Um, I have a business called Commune. We create courses and education with thought leaders and teachers. And we've built up um, a, you know, a huge database of people that have studied with Russell Brand or Marianne Williamson or Zach Bush or Mark Hyman, et cetera. Some, you know, brilliant folks. And so that list is, you know, 1.5 million emails or something. And, um, and here we were careening into lockdown. And um, my partner, Jake, was like, you know, I think people really need a ballast right now. They need a sense of connection and tenderness. And they need someone to shepherd them through this time. And so why don't you, you know, write a weekly column and. Uh, and, you know, we'll deploy it out to this list. <laughs> and I naively, I agreed to do it. And I, and I didn't really uh, have the foresight uh, in terms of what it would become. But um, I got myself over a barrel and I started writing, you know, 2,000 to 2,500 words every week for, for publication on, on Sunday when we would send out this list. And of course... You know, 2020 was a relatively eventful year. And so there was a lot of fodder to, to draw from. And I wasn't just, you know, writing about the illusory nature of self or Buddhism or whatever. I was also writing about COVID and misinformation and the election and George Floyd and all of the complicated dimensions of, of, of the reckoning for racial and social justice, et cetera. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think I ended up writing about 85,000 words or so over the course of, of 2020. Um, really, and every one of these essays was drew from some kind of personal story or personal experience that I've, I had to be able to ground some of these like very incendiary social issues inside of story. Because I really started connecting to the power of story. And um, story really has an ability to unite. And because you, one can see part of their own story in the story of someone else. And instead of, you know, just putting out these missives of saying, well, like, here's my opinion on this. Well, we already covered that. <laughs> that would just basically create some sort of contrary opinion or opposition. That really wasn't my point. My point was never really to be right about anything. My point is communion. I mean, communion, we're very um, familiar with sort of the religious context of it, the receipt of the Holy Eucharist on Sunday with the wafer and the wine and the transubstantiation from the body and, and blood of Christ. But the literal meaning of communion 
is intimate discussions around spiritual matters. And mm. this is what I was trying to foster was really intimate discussions around these very salient, prescient issues that were coming to the fore and really altering people's spiritual uh, dysbiosis or symbiosis, if you will, either way. And so I was writing all these articles and I started connecting my personal email to every article. And I said, listen, if you have any thoughts about what I've just written, well, email me. <laughs> you can imagine with a list that big, like the deluge of emails that I would get on Sundays and Mondays and sort of crest <laughs> the bow of my inbox, you know, thousands of them. And, you know, many of them were just lovely and I'm not beyond some ego adulation from time to time. And, um, but many of them were not, you know, many of them were highly critical. And if you write that many words, or if you're a podcast host like yourself and you're <laughs> loquacious and say a lot of things, there's bound to be something that pisses someone off somewhere, you know? For sure. And um, and little turns of phrase that people take umbrage to or whatever it happens to be. So, you know, I certainly I would get my a, a fair share of emails that were just I couldn't even respond to. It would be like Trump 2020, Trump 2020, Trump like 5,000 times or something. I didn't even know what to do with that. Or from the left, equally, to be honest, of like, you know, you're just another white dude. Shut up. You don't have anything to say in this mm -hmm. moment, you know, and mm -hmm. and. I would try to actually just, I would always meditate and then I would respond to basically every email. And I would always do it from a place of compassion and respect. And it would take me like days, basically. And in some cases, I would have, um, with the most kind of thoughtful folks, I would have a, a volley of emails. And then I would just say, listen, if you want to have a Zoom, let's have a Zoom. And I spent the summer of 2020 having Zoom calls with people that don't agree with me. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. So you you have to be a Buddhist to do this. There's no there's <laughs> no other way. Either 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 that or you've got a bottle of wine sitting uh, off camera. Yeah, I don't know how you well, did it. Not, those two things are not as disassociated as you, you think they might be. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, so I would put aside Monday and Tuesday afternoons in my calendar, and I would fill them up with, um, with people that had a bone to pick with me. And, All right, hold on. You got to stop. You got to yeah. stop. I got to ask. I got I to gotta jump in here. Yeah. Was there any part of you that you're, what was it when you have somebody that has an adversarial relationship, did most people, because you did diff, many different people, did most people come on wanting to tell you off and using it as an opportunity or did it change their view because you were open enough and willing to listen? I'm not even talking about before even like, I'm talking like the first two minutes yeah. or were they more polite because they sensed that you cared? Definitely the latter. I mean, they, they respected my openness 
And of course, they were also brave enough to engage with me. Many times I would yeah. offer the Zoom, and that was the last communication. People just oh, I'm like, sure. oh yeah, like bloody hell! I've got to talk to this guy. I got to see his face. No way. Yeah. No. You know, not the key, key, keyboard warriors want to want to stay in cloak and dagger in their basement eating Doritos. They the, they do not want to face you in a Zoom. That's exactly it, and it's it's of course hard to hate up close, you know. And we learn that over and over again, and. Um, you know, Rob, the topics around which we engaged were quite different, but the experience was almost always the same. I would get on, we would, there would generally be some kind of polite, small talk of like, thank you, you know, and then I wouldn't say a word for 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And Inevitably, the person on the other line would start with their life story and tell me the whole thing. And through after I got through about half a dozen of these, it dawned on me. It's not about racial justice. It's not about vaccination. It's not about Trump. It's not about misinformation. I mean, yeah, all those things are important. We need to talk about them. But... People just want to be heard, period. And as I got better at this, because I have no training in nonviolent communication, of course, subsequently I've, I've looked at it, you know, and, uh, and everyone should. This guy named Marshall Goldberg, I think his name is, and he started this thing called nonviolent communication. And there are actually techniques around this. But I would just listen. And I would take notes and I would take notes around the areas of similarity in their life and my own. And after about 40 minutes, when they've tired themselves out, like jujitsu, right? <laughs> you just like let the other person tire themselves out. Um, you know, I would start to enumerate all the things that we have in common. I was like, oh, that's crazy. I was born in Chicago too. And I drove across country and my truck, you know, broke down. And, you know, and man, it was like the common humanity that we can find with each other. When we take the time to do this, to have conversation, to have communion is so much greater than the things that divide us. But we rarely do it. Was there anybody who didn't fit that bill or maybe what percentage of people didn't fit that bill and they just wanted to give you a what for and they just wanted to let you know their opinion and and tell you off no not because i think once it got that far people were ready to engage i mean and that doesn't mean i changed their opinion about something like for example i wrote an article a very thoroughly researched article called The Other Epidemic, which was, I wrote it in August, I believe, of 2020. And it was an analysis of, of, the, of, of who was most likely to contract aggressive COVID. And, you know, I looked at obesity rates, chronic disease, comorbidity, immunocompromisation, all of this kind of stuff. I mastered a tremendous amount of data and, you know, what became clear in the research that I was able to do 
was that, okay, there's 44% of the American population is obese. That is the highest indicator for aggressive COVID, I mean, and hospitalization and, and fatality because it's concomitant with diabetes and heart disease. And I'm sorry if that offends people. I, this is not about shaming anyone for their BMI. This is just a reflection of the data that I'm finding. And that doesn't mean it's your fault. I was chubby all my life, you know? I mean, I still am in a knife fight with my muffin top, <laughs> you know, from day to day. So, you know, but this is just the data that I'm finding. And yeah, we should be, you know, investigating vaccinology and prophylactic therapeutics and all these other kinds of things. But this is also an opportunity to address the ground conditions of our public health and, and our personal health. And, you know, if you don't want to get sick, you know, there's some things that we can engage in. And that's not saying that your immune system is so sovereign and, and, and strong to fight off smallpox or measles or, you know, other pathogens. Um, that wasn't the point. The point was like, listen, like, here's the data. And there were a lot of people that were really pissed off about that and felt as if I was essentially shaming people that were overweight. Um, by simply, by simply stating facts. <sighs> Yeah, but but I understand because, you know, I understand because I was overweight for my whole adolescence. I was teased mercilessly. What that did to my psychological states, the shaming, the constant desire to fit in, to consistently the shape shift so to speak, in order to be part of a group. I mean, it was exhausting. And it, 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 it was the signature of my entire life, to be honest. Um, always people-pleasing, always changing who I was in order to fit in. And it took me 50 years <laughs> to understand the difference between fitting in and belonging. But I love that. Yeah. You know, listen, people, people listening to us right now, we're, you know, I'm you're how old are you now? 50? 50. Yeah. Okay. You're 50. I'm 55. There is a, there's a freedom somehow that happens <laughs> when you hit that 50. I don't know if it's, you just don't give a fuck or you <laughs> just, <of> that. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like you just, you're, you're just, you're just who you are. Well, listen, this was um, absolutely incredible. I can't thank you enough for taking the time uh, to do this. Do you have any um, final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Yeah, I would just take a moment every day just to sit quietly and observe your breath and remove all the cloaks of all of the identities that you wear you know, maybe you're a parent or maybe you're taking care of a parent um, or maybe your job, you know, really requires a tremendous amount of attention from you. Um, but just let that go for a moment and let go of your need to be right or to be wrong or of your political identities or any identity that you have at all. Uh, and just take some time to be with your breath 
And it, it sounds crazy. It sounds woo-woo. But I guarantee that it will begin to punctuate your life in a way that makes you much, much more content and calm. And, you know, you said something earlier that, you know, sparked a thought, which is, you know, enlightenment might be as simple as just feeling light. And, Mm. you know, there is so much that we do and that we engage in that makes us feel heavy. So take an inventory of what that is. What makes you feel heavy? And then take an inventory of what makes you feel light. And just simply do the things that make you feel light. You don't have to be Jesus. You don't have to be the Buddha. You don't have to be Muhammad. You just have to feel light. We're going to end it right there. That was freaking awesome. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. We'll link everything up in the show notes for people to connect with everything that you do. Thanks for what you do, Rob. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.